I did not get to talk to Cody. My mother sent me a text right before I came in, and she said, he preached the whole Bible. (laughs) She had six pages of notes. So for whatever that means, I think it went well. And uh, All right. Well, it's kind of a hodgepodge sermon tonight from different texts, but let us begin our time tonight in Genesis 22. I'm going to read the whole passage uh, in order to look at one word. I'm basically just preaching two prepositions tonight, two words, two prepositions, and we will find one of those in Genesis 22. But we'll read the story. I'm not preaching all the text. I'm only dealing with this particular word, and we'll get to it momentarily as we think of communion tonight. All right, Genesis 22, familiar to some of you, I'm sure. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's a great phrase there. You believe that Abraham believed in the resurrection. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so, that, so, they both, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, well, and here's the statement, God will provide for himself. The lamb for a burnt offering, my son. There's a lot of gospel right there. You think about Christ, this whole business of the cross, God provided for himself. So they went both of them together. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring and the, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, that'd be another entirely different sermon, but do note, Abraham loved God more than his children. It's a pretty tall task in our day, but he loved God more so than his own child. Now, for our topic tonight, what we're looking at tonight, you can return there to verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket. Sorry, I lost my place. Caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering and the word instead of his son. So I want to mention this word instead. Um, Cody wants to get in the church. I think he's out there standing in the heat. It's good for him. Oh, he wants Kevin to come in too. That's nice. We opened the door for Kevin and Cody got in. All right, welcome, welcome, guys. We're in Genesis 22, verse 13. So the word instead, now, not doing the Hebrew word, but looking at the Greek text of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word is anti, A-N-T-I, if you want it in English letters. It's a preposition, anti. And I want to talk to you a bit about that word and then another word. But this word anti is interesting for us tonight and for communion. Um, Auntie is used uh, 22 times in the New Testament. It's not used a lot. 22 is not a great number, uh, but that's how many times it's used in the New Testament. I didn't count the number of the times it's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. But this is what we need to know about this word. It indicates that one person or one thing is to be replaced by another in the place of. But this can happen in several different ways. And so I'm going to flush this out a little bit and hopefully it'll all come together for you. So a few different views of the word. What does it mean to replace or substitute something? Replacing something with the same value. You can replace something with the same value. Uh, For just a weak illustration, so here's a hymn book right here. And there's a hymn book on the front pew, and I could replace this one with that one. It's the same value, so put that one away, and I replace it with the one on the front pew. So that would be of the same value. Um, examples. First Thessalonians something something says, don't, uh, don't uh, return evil for evil. Also says that in Peter. So equal value. Somebody's evil, you don't return the same value of evil back to them. So it can be used in that way, exchanging something of the same value. 
can also be this, to replace something with something that is superior, something that's superior. So I'm going to replace this thing with this other thing, and this other thing is much more superior. Um, so if I'm going to work, I don't know why I'm working with the hymn book, but if I have this hymn book and I want to replace it with something that is superior, I replace it with the person who wrote the hymn. And then he's here in person, and he leads the song that he wrote. So that would be, in a sense, superior. As I think about that, now this is my theology, and not a lot agree with me on John 1.16, and that's fine, but I have to speak what I believe. But in John 1.16, I put this word here in, in that verse, and other people do not. I'm just letting you know that. But in John 1.16, I can quote it, but I want to make sure I get the words right. But in verse 16, for from his fullness we have received grace, and the ESV would say upon, upon. Upon is accumulation. So you have something and you add more to it. Grace upon grace is accumulation. I don't put it in that category. I put it in the category of superior. So you had grace in the Old Testament, and all that God did with the nation of Israel, Israel was grace. But now we have a superior grace in the new covenant with Christ. Now, that's my view. Others would hold to more of an accumulation view that grace is added to grace. You get grace and more grace and more grace. And what I'm saying is grace in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant is replaced by something far superior, Christ and the New Covenant. So that's another way. A third way is the one I just mentioned, and that's replacing something in the sense of accumulation. If you want an example of that, uh, Exodus 33, Exodus 33 and something, Exodus 33 and 13, Exodus 33 and 13, this would be accumulation, and so the ESV uses the word favor, the Septuagint uses the word charis, which is grace, and so let us just use the word grace here. Now, therefore, if I have found grace in your sight, this is Moses asking and talking to the Lord, if I found grace, so if I have grace, that's what he's saying, then show me your ways that I might know you in order to find grace. I have grace, show me your ways that I can find grace. So I have grace, and if I know your ways, then I'll have even more grace, accumulation. And then a fourth way to take this and most people wouldn't refer to this or catch this, but I think it's good for us to know it, especially in light of communion. But turn in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, and this is a type of replacement that is very difficult for us to grasp, and I hope it would help you tonight to love Jesus more. But in Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay, so we got verse 1, and now we're going to take a look at Jesus, and we're going to look at this word auntie and this replacement in a different light. So in, ver in verse 2, looking to Jesus 
the founder or the author and perfecter of our faith. We're looking at him. We're looking at the table tonight. We know that Christ founded the church. We know that Christ is the perfecter of the church. He's the perfecter of our faith. And then you see this word auntie. It says who for, F-O-R. That's our Greek word we're looking at. So now we have a different type of replacement. He had absolute perfect joy in the presence of God in heaven, and he replaced this perfect joy he experienced in glory with a cross. That's what it says. That was set before him. He took that joy, he set it aside, and he did what? He endured the cross, despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, replacing communion with execution. That's the way the word is used here. So, you can replace something with the same value. You can replace something with something that's superior. You can replace something in the sense of accumulation. You can replace communion with execution. In Genesis 22, whichever category you want to put it in, this replacement is with a ram. So, in a sense, it's kind of lesser value than, than Isaac is, but it foreshadows something that's superior. So, in place of Isaac, you get a ram that's less than or lower than. However, it's pointed to something theologically down the road, and what we're going to do is we're not going to replace this sacrifice of the only son, what we're going to do is we're going to replace you with someone who's superior. So instead of you being slaughtered under the wrath of God, because that's the story, instead of you having the knife come down on you and you be slaughtered and thrown into hell, what we're going to do is we're going to replace you with something far superior. We're going to replace you with Christ himself. And then he will be slaughtered on your behalf, in order that you can go free. Now, the word auntie that we're looking at is not used in John chapter 18, verse 8. I know that. But it does demonstrate in a very clear way what this word means in Genesis twenty-two thirteen. So in John 18, 8, it's a short verse, and it says, They come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus answers them. This is what he says. I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these go. Take me instead of them. This is the gospel. This helps us. Christ says... Take me and take all the wrath and put on me and let these who deserve it go free. I will pay an eternal redemption. The cross doesn't make salvation possible. The cross doesn't make it perhaps or conditional. Christ literally substitutes and redeems people for God in our place, something that is superior, someone who is superior. 
the replacement that we're talking about here in Genesis, I would just say a couple of things more about it. It is an act of God's grace. On God's part, the replacement with the ram, the replacement in the New Testament with Christ, is all grace. God does this. I would also say to you that in Genesis, it is a precursor of what is to come. This You cannot read Genesis 22 and then try to figure out how people in the Old Testament got saved. This is the gospel. Somebody's got to die. Blood's got to be shed. There must be a substitution. There must be a resurrection because I and the boy are going to come back down. All of this is here in Genesis 22. All of those things we preach from the New Testament, they're clearly here. It's a precursor of what is to come. Thirdly, I would say it's a reward for having a God-given faith. God-given faith, Abraham has to take his son up, his only son. And then you never get to experience the reward without the obedience of obeying what God said. God said, do this. It's got to be trying. It's got to be taxing. It's got to require faith. But faith gets to see the ram caught in the thicket. You don't go up the mountain, you don't see. You don't go up the mountain, you don't participate. But by doing what is told, Faith gets rewarded. Fourthly, I would say, it is theology. Auntie is theology. Instead of, is good theology, right? This text in Genesis says what? It says, here's our theology. God provides everything necessary for you to be right with Him. It's a providential theology. It's a gospel theology. It's good news. He doesn't have to die. The ram has to die. That's good news. You don't have to be slaughtered. Christ was slaughtered for you. It's a promise. God will provide. Take it to the bank. Everything you need, God has promised it. Faithfulness is here. The theology of faithfulness. God always provides. God always does what's right. The theology of election. It's this ram that's slaughtered, not another ram. There's other rams, but it's this one that's elected. It's Christ who is elected to go to the cross. And on and on we could go with other things of theology, but all of those things and many more are demonstrated in this narrative. Now, that's auntie, and let's move our attention now to the other Greek word, which is huper. It's also a preposition, huper most commonly gets translated F-O-R, for. This word is a bit different. Now, you heard the other one. You heard the four ways you could see substitution. But there's something unique about this word. It is to do something on behalf of another, for the sake of another, for the sake of someone. Something's being done And all the profit of the action is profited by the other person. Person A does something, person B receives all the profit. This is who pair. I'm doing this in your place for you to benefit from it. This is the difference. Let me give you some examples in the Scriptures. Let's talk about the blood of Christ. We sang about it. We think about it tonight as we drink from the cup. His blood. I'll give you one verse, Mark chapter 14, verse 24. He said to them, This is the blood 
of my covenant. It's what we're talking about in communion. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for. My blood is poured out for the benefit of the many. This is who pair. Let's talk about his body. In Luke 22, 19 and 20, we'll return to that later. But he took the bread, and he'd given thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. It's all for your benefit. When you partake of the bread tonight, Christ is giving this for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's what it says on the front of the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they'd eaten This cup is poured out for you, for your benefit. It's the new covenant in my blood. So we talk about blood, we talk about body. Let's talk about his death. Now this is in Romans. You might want to turn there if you like. Uh, Just a short passage, but it is Romans, and it's chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and verses 6 through, I think, about 8. 6 through 8. You're going to see the word for several times. And each time it is the Greek word huper. In Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, while we were still unable, while we were still deficient, while we were still without power or strength, when we were in a condition that we didn't have the ability to do anything, it was at the right time Christ did something. Christ died for you. We behold the cross. This act of dying is all for your benefit. Christ is not gaining righteousness. He has it all. It's all for you. For the ungodly, that's me, that's you. See, You see, because one will scarcely die for, on the behalf of, for the benefit of a righteous person. It might happen in some odd scenarios here or there, but it's not real common. But though perhaps for a good person you might even dare to die, might possibly, not going to do it this way, but you might do it this way. But here's what we know. God shows his love for us. How? While I was in the state of being sinner, depraved, God-hating, rebel, living for myself, when I was in that position, in rebellion, shaking my fist in the face of God, Christ died for us. Not after I cleaned up my act and started doing a certain thing. When I was as wicked as wicked could be, Christ, who pair, he died for me. Everything I received is all benefit. You're saved tonight. Everything you have is all benefit. You get everything that's in Christ. He did this for your benefit. His blood, his body, his death, and his gift. Romans 8, verse 32. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. A God who would do this, a God who would complete what Abraham aborted, if you will. He didn't sacrifice his son. There was a substitute. Now God doesn't abort the process. He slaughters his son, this God who didn't spare his own son but gave him up. How will he not also with him graciously give you everything? This is God's love to you. He holds nothing back. He graciously, willingly gives you everything. A God who would do this to save you holds nothing back to shower his love upon you. Well, as the old preacher said, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. Now back to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, and I just want to make a couple of notes about this text here, 14 through 23. He says in Luke, four, in Luke 22, 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it. I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to, we don't often read those verses. We jump right on down to the other parts. But I wanted you to see those first few verses for this reason. There's a word, epithemia. It has, uh, has to do a lot of times in the Bible with this great desire, and it's usually attached to negative things like sexual desire or lust. And so, but it's also, it, it is a, a word that means strong desire, but it doesn't have to be negative. It can be positive, and here it's positive. So as strong as a desire would be for sexual things, that type of desire, and I'm glad you're here tonight because if you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't hear this. This is how much Christ wants to have supper with you. So we talk about coming, worshiping, honoring, and giving thanks. Those things are right. Sometimes we forget Christ himself wants you to be here where he can fellowship with you. It's spiritual. Christ wants to talk to you, visit you, remind you, preach to you, show himself to you, encourage you, show you the gospel one more time. Christ earnestly desires your presence at the table. This word is used positively in some other places like Paul in Philippians 1.23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. Or in 1 Thessalonians, I'd greatly desire to see you face to face. Jesus, in our text, had a great desire to eat with the disciples. And I think that same desire continues today. And that's why we have communion. And also notice he says this in verse 16. Will not eat it again until later. I do want you to be reminded of this. This may be the last time you have communion. You may be dead tomorrow. Or you could be at my parents' church where Cody just was, and they're not having communion because they got no preacher. they got nobody to serve communion. So they won't have communion. I don't know when they'll ever have communion. But you can't take these things for granted. We don't know. 
So we have to value communion today because we may never see it again tomorrow. And then also, it is dangerous for us to always assume there's another opportunity. I do think of this. I talked with several pastors today, and I think of countless churches that are unable to have communion because they have no qualified pastor to lead them or a church that don't get the importance of it. You, you don't understand and appreciate things till they're taken away. Go through about five years without communion and then see if you miss it. If you're Christian, you're going to long for communion. And, you know, growing up in church, it was always the once a quarter thing. You did communion four times a year. And I, I didn't understand that growing up. But as I grew as a Christian, I thought, this is not enough for me. I need more than once a quarter to be reminded of the gospel. Maybe we don't do it enough. Maybe we should do it every Sunday. I don't know. But at least we should do it every month because I need it. I'm reminded of how valuable it is to remind me about my sins. Remind me what Christ has done. Remind me of forgiveness and cleansing. Remind me that he will come. Remind me that we all proclaim in unity until he comes. We proclaim his death. All these things are so important to our souls. And we see in this text, in Luke 22, verses 17 and 18, and also in verse 20, if you look there at your text, 17, he took the cup, he given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Verse 20, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I'll just give you two things. We could say a lot more. The cup does represent the wrath of God. If you need clear scriptural reference for that, Revelation 14, verse 9 and 10 would be a clear reference that whatever all the cup means, it certainly includes the unmitigated wrath of God. Drinking it for Christ symbolized what was to come on Calvary. And it also, according to 1 Corinthians, the other passage on communion, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, it does represent the blood of the Lamb, which is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Then you have the bread in verse 19. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread obviously represents his body. I would ask you to turn there. It's just a couple of verses, but in John 6, just a few pages over in your Bible, John chapter 6 and verse, verses, there's several of these. I'll do them in order. They say the same thing, but let us read them anyways. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Notice, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, shall not hunger. And then in verse 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And then if you look at verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give, him for, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread of represents the substance we need to live. We need Christ. So we had 
Words matter. Words matter. Auntie and Hooper, they matter a lot for the gospel. We have worship matters. And then lastly, in the same text, Luke 22, a woeful misery. And I just want to bring this out because sometimes we don't emphasize this part, and maybe we should. But in verses 21 through 23, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the t- on the table. For the son of, son of Man goes as it has been determined. The Son of Man goes determined. The cross is a determined event for Christ. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now there's uncertainty in the room, and they begin to question one another. Which of them it could be who is going to do this? So a couple of subpoints here. Detrimental. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be delivered up. There are numerous ways to hand Jesus over, even for us. Correct? We look at Judas and we say, how can you do such a thing? How could you hand Jesus over? How could you deliver him up? I don't know. What about us? When we compromise convictions, when we make sure our flesh gets satisfied at the expense of Christ, when we create idolatry and give our heart to another, all of these are ways to give up Christ. It's detrimental to our faith. But then there's the word determined about the Son of Man here, to make a determination about something, to appoint something, to fix something. Let me give you a couple of references for that. Acts 2.23 is the most famous one probably. This Jesus delivered it up according to the definite plan. I know Sunday school teachers and weird shallow churches teach this and run across it many times. Plan B. You got plan A and you got plan B. There's no plan B. There's only plan A. Plan A is determined and appointed a day for Christ to do this to redeem his people. It's not a plan B. In other words, if, if the cross doesn't work, nothing's working. Acts 10, 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify, he, Christ, is the one appointed by God. And then a couple of in Acts 17, just two more references in Acts 17. There's a lot more. These are just the ones I picked. But he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. You know why you live now? Because God determined it. You know why you live here? Because God determined it. This is where you are because God put you here. He determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You want to you talk about situations? Do I want to live here? Not really. It's not where I would pick to build a house and make a home. I'd pick, I'd pick somewhere in the mountains, somewhere where there's not a lot of people and there's a little river and a creek and a little cabin and then nobody would ever bother me and there would be no internet and I would never have to look at a phone again in my life. That's what I'm picking, but it's not up to me. God determined for me to be here and he determined for you to be here and he set the boundaries for us. And so here we are doing church together. Until he comes. And then Acts 17, 31. He's fixed a day. He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man that God himself has appointed. So in conclusion, here's the discussion. These last verses, they're having a discussion, right? They question one another. Which of them it's going to be that's going to do this? And so you ask yourself tonight, is it me? 
Am I the traitor in the room? Do I sell out Christ? Will I sell out Christ tomorrow at my job? Will I sell him out in my family tonight? Will I exchange him for something else? Is it me that he's talking about here in this text? How is it that I betray him? How do I do that? How do I do it so often? If I could discover how I'm doing that, Lord, would you give me grace to repent that I'd stop betraying you? Will I do this again? Judas did it and then hung himself. And so end of story in a sense, other than the fact that he's eternally bound in hell. But if, if, if I do betray Christ, am I going to do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day? Could I come to an end here and stop selling Christ for 30 pieces of silver in order to gratify my flesh? Could I stop all of this and make sure that I'm like the other 11 and I give my life for the glory of Christ? And why should I do that? Because of auntie and because of Huper, he's replaced me with someone superior. And the one he replaced me with has done something for me. And because he has, he is worthy to be lived for for the rest of my life. And I long that one day to be in his presence forever. Let's take a moment and pray. I'll light the candles as we pray, and then I'll close us in prayer as we prepare to break bread together tonight.